Biathlon is a unique Olympic event. It challenges participants with opposing athletic endeavors in a singular competition. It combines the heart-pumping aerobic aspects of cross-country skiing matched with the intense focus of precision marksmanship. Two diametrically opposing forces testing every ounce of physical and mental strength of athletes. Welcome to Heartbeat, the U.S. Biathlon podcast. I'm your host, Tom Kelly. With each episode, Heartbeat brings you insights into this fascinating sport. So did you catch some of the biathlon action from Beijing? That opening mixed relay was a great way to kick off the Olympic Winter Games. It's been a busy month for biathlon with the Olympic Winter Games in Beijing followed almost immediately by the Youth and Junior World Championships at Soldier Hollow, site of the 2002 Olympic biathlon events in Utah. There were some great storylines for U.S. biathlon in Beijing, including that opening mixed relay and performances by newcomers like Deidre Irwin. Today, Heartbeat will recap the games from Beijing with U.S. Biathlon High Performance Director Lowell Bailey, as well as exploring the Youth and Junior World Championships with Development Director Tim Burke. Tim will give us insights into the top U.S. Biathlon storylines there, plus the impact of an event like that on the sport here in America. Lowell and Tim are coming to us from Lake Placid, New York, and we'll also preview the upcoming national championships at Mount Van Hoevenberg. So now let's head to Lake Placid to hear from Lowell Bailey and Tim Burke on Heartbeat. And we are slowly but surely coming to the end of the biathlon season as we record this podcast. We are in the World Cups in Estonia coming up this following weekend, World Cups in Oslo, and then on to the U.S. Championships in Lake Placid. And we're going to recap some of the big events that have taken place over the last month. Uh, first of all, the Olympics in Beijing and then the Youth and Junior Worlds in Soldier Hollow in the United States. And joining me both from Lake Placid as we come near the end of the season, Director of High Performance Lowell Bailey and Director of Athlete Development Tim Burke. And guys, welcome and welcome back to Heartbeat. Thanks for having us, Tom. Looking forward to it. Great to be here. Thanks, Tom. So what? what's just, uh, before we get into the Olympics, what's the vibe in Lake Placid? How's the season been there? And do you have snow out, uh, out on the ground right now? <laughs> yes. So at our new venue here at Mount Van Hovenberg, they have a really world-class snowmaking system. And that uh, that's saving us right now because on the ground outside, there's not too much natural snow. Although... It sounds like that might change here this weekend with a big storm, but we're looking forward to hopefully some some great conditions here coming up for nationals. Well, that's great. Well, I know that everybody's excited to get on that new venue at Mount Van Hovenberg, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Let's, uh, uh, Lowell, let's talk a little bit about the Olympics now. This, of course, the big event that everyone shoots for uh, every four years. This one was fraught with a lot of additional challenges. And uh, let's actually, before we get into the athletics, let's just talk about how things went logistically for you. Uh, certainly with uh, COVID, with it being in China, your team's faced a lot of additional challenges. How did that end up working for everybody? Were you able to get there smoothly and get through your day-to-day without too many challenges? Yeah, I mean, I think it was a long a long road of um, logistics, paperwork, uh, just China, as, as everyone probably knows by now, um, they were very um, adamant about keeping their um, zero-COVID 
policy in check. And so um, that of um, preliminary work on the NGB side and the Olympic Committee side. So um, really the bulk of the work was in the two months prior to the Olympics. And then, um, you know, once we got into the closed loop system there, um, yes, we had daily PCRs. Yes, um, the environment was a little bit different than I think anyone living in the Western world has experienced. Um, you know, the cuts went off really well. Uh, and, you know, in terms of once you were on the venue, once you were there during a race, during a training session, it felt, you know, relatively normal. So was, the lead up to the Olympics was a pretty heavy lift on all of the NGBs. And then, uh, yeah, the travel was challenging a lot of a PCR tests and specific, uh, testing locations that made it a big challenge, honestly, to get the teams and team members over to Beijing. When you do have such a closed loop, um, it does, it's, it is just that, like there was no, um, really not a whole lot of activity coming into that closed loop or going out of that closed loop. So we were more than I think anyone's experienced thus far, uh, in the pandemic, um, very much so a, a, a bubble situation. Lowell, I know that your role is athletic, and the question I'm going to ask really goes beyond that. But one of the things about an Olympics is you go to a different place, you get out to experience the culture, you get to meet the people. That really wasn't possible. And, you know, did did that have an impact on, on people there? Uh, uh, and we'll talk about the athletic side in a minute, but how did it impact uh, you, you and your athletes when you really couldn't experience China? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was a challenge for everyone. Uh, we were we were definitely to the locations we could go, and there definitely was not any of the typical cultural immersion that you you see at a at a typical Olympics. That being said, everyone made the best of it. And um, what I can say is the you know the camaraderie that you feel at the Olympics with a lot of other sports, and particularly the Team USA. That that situation that happens every four years, where you have different sports from Team USA being in the same place, um, that's a unique experience that athletes don't get typically. Um, you really don't overlap with a lot of the other sports like cross country skiing or alpine or any of those. So that was, I think, preserved in a sense. Um, those typical things that you see at an Olympics, um, large dining hall where a lot of different um, sports come before and after competitions, and it was a dining hall with with separate plexiglass partitions for each eating area, but it was a dining hall where different sports were coming and going. And it, it did have that sort of hustle and bustle of activity that you come to expect for an Olympic games. Those of us watching from afar were really blown away by the venues, all of the venues, not just by Athlon. Uh, it, it was really amazing to see what had been built uh, across the entire region for all of the athletic venues. How was your biathlon venue? Yeah, I mean, it was a phenomenal venue. Um, you know, I, I have to give a shout out to Max, an American honored by uh, the Beijing Olympic Committee to um, oversee and create the biathlon venue and design the biathlon venue. So he, he spent the better part of four years uh, working with them to create what turned out to be just a a phenomenal venue. And I have to say, like he, he was given a challenging setting given the natural terrain there. It's uh, naturally just sort of a valley. Um, he had to be really creative in, in how he put together that course. But um, yeah, had it, I think all the athletes really had positive feedback on the course profile. 
It was really challenging with the weather. Um, we had really cold conditions the entire time. Yeah, really challenging conditions to compete in for the athletes. It was something that everyone knew going, you know, years out as we did our preparation. So, um, you know, our team apparel provider, Maloya, worked for the last couple of years developing specialized clothing system that was uh, developed to counteract some of those, you know, those high or low wind chill numbers. Um, so we were prepared for it. Uh, and I think the athletes, you know, fared really well um, with those preparations. Well, let's move into talking about uh, about the athletes and about performance. But before we do, let's look at your selection process. Uh, you actually had a selection process that uh, went back a full year to start naming people to the team. As you look back over that process, how did that work for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's something that we've year over year, um, every quad, we've uh, striven to make the process more and more fair. Um, I think that it's always a challenge with team naming criteria because no one has a crystal ball and no one can predict the future. And I think athletes especially really don't, you know, you can imagine like as an athlete, you don't want to put the entire decision process uh, to a discretionary naming um, situation because then you're putting that team naming in the hands of a select group of individuals I know that's, you know, a lot of how a lot of other sports do it and a lot of other countries do it that way, where it just comes down to what the coaches decide in the end. We've really tried to build a um, team naming criteria that really takes into account um, results taking place over a longer period of time. So it's not a flash in the pan result, but it also is weighting the results that occur closer to the season those count more than the results earlier in the season. So for example, those that qualified early on, um, which would have been Susan Dunkley and Claire Egan, they qualified, like you said, a year in advance. And um, they did so with just really, really top level results on the World Cup. And so uh, that, that allowed them to pre-qualify, which is an advantage uh, for the athlete because they can really just focus on preparing for the games versus uh, qualifying for the games. But I think our process is fair. Um, and, you know, we, we have a, a tiered process or a graduated process where you move through different tiers of the, of the qualification. Uh, and so our last athletes were qualifying actually in January. Um, so the, the final spots on the roster were, were not filled until that point which is actually pretty common uh, when you look across a lot of the other sports. I think it's a good system. You know, I'm sure that there's arguments out there of, of ways we can improve it. And we always try to review and try to make improvements where we can. But I think overall, it, it picked a really top team and we had our best athletes on the start line in Beijing. Let's talk about the uh, athletic performance uh, in Beijing. But before we have you do a little summary, I just want to talk about that mixed relay where you opened up on the first Saturday of the games and just brought some really th thrilling performance. Uh, uh, it, it was fun to watch that. It was fun to hear Chad Salma call that event. Uh, you ended up seventh, uh, strong finish. Uh, just talk about that event, and then we'll kind of move on to the rest of the games. Yeah. Um, it was a really exciting start to the games. Um, I think we had really 
really challenging conditions, both on from the athlete side of things, but also from the ski preparation side of things. We really had a lot of challenges and always with the first race, it's a bit of a, that, you know, that's your first test to see how, how your wax is, how your ski preparation, stone grinds, hand structure, all of those things that you've worked. You know, we sent two different preliminary trips of technicians to Beijing in advance of the games just to test all of these things. So um, we were really happy with um, the fact that our skis were competitive and, you know, top of, top of class uh, in terms of ski speed. And you really can tell right off the bat in a mass start situation of uh, the initial scramble in a relay, first downhill, you can definitely tell if your skis are in the mix or not. You know, it was an interesting relay uh, because, uh, you know, Susan had a solid leg. I mean, she really stayed with it, but she used three extras in her first um, shooting. And when you use three extra rounds uh, in that first stage, uh, it it definitely sets you back and you lose contact with the, the lead group. So, you know, hats off to Susan for staying with it, staying focused and, you know, getting through her leg tagging off to Claire. And, um, you know, that was enough. She kept us in contention enough that, you know, both Claire and Sean had phenomenal, uh, races, both of them, you know, only used one extra round from the clip and gradually between the two of them moved back up to a point where, um, you know, at one point, Sean, Sean left, uh, standing in, uh, you know, basically tied for first leading the race. And, um, that was just a great, a great moment. Um, and, and a great sort of example of when you, when you just don't, you know, you don't give up and you continue to try and, um, focus on the process and not the result. Usually nine times out of 10, the result will follow. So, uh, it was, I think what people may not understand is just how challenging those conditions were that night. Um, and, Yes, we had a penalty loop with Schomer in the final, um, in that final prone stage, but uh, so did so many of the other top nations. Um, and if you look at our overall shooting that day, one plus twelve is is really, um, you know, it's one penalty and twelve extra extra rounds. On a on a normal day, that would be a kind of a mediocre showing, but on that day, you know, that was a really a, a very good, um, a very good showing and something that, uh, you know, helped us get to that point. Just to give you like frame of reference, the top teams that day, Norway won, uh, you know, gold medal with three penalty loops and 13 extra rounds. So that gives you a bit of a, you know, perspective of just how challenging it was. I think, I don't know if there were any teams, I don't think there were any teams ahead of us that didn't have penalty loops. So very interesting start to the Olympics um, and definitely exciting to see us, you know, right there, even going into the final tag off with, with Doherty there. It was really exciting to be at the front of the race for most of the race. 
Well, I urge listeners, if you haven't seen this already, go to Peacock TV, and I think you can probably still watch uh, that event, but it was it was just thrilling. And, and they did a good job of showing the impact that the weather was having across the entire field. So uh, it, w- it was really a great way to start it out. Uh, let's kind of look forward, Lowell, over the rest of the games. What were some of the big highlights for U.S. Biathlon? I think you got to say that like the biggest highlight was Deidre Irwin's uh, seventh place in the individual. Um, I think that that really, uh, yeah, I think first and foremost, the most surprised person out there was Deidre and you as evidenced by some of her post-race interviews. Um, but really, if you look at some of the indicators, ski speed, shooting percentage leading into the games, it's not that surprising. You know, she, she definitely was able to peak at the games. And we saw that throughout the games that her ski speed, you know, was bumped up a bit. And, uh, it, again, just a great example of an athlete really staying focused, not getting distracted by really, you know, a myriad of, of distractions. Uh, uh, when you look at what the athletes had to undergo just to get to Beijing, tons of PCR testing, tons of distractions in terms of travel and, you know, stuff that you would just normally would not face in the lead up to an Olympic games. And, um, yeah, it was great to see her perform there again. We, you know, throughout the games, I think we had, uh, we had great skis, which really helps an athlete when you know, you're on a good pair of skis and you've got a competitive either a competitive advantage with some of the nations, but, you know, even with the top nations that you're as, as good on the, on the snow, on the tracks, um, that just builds the confidence. And with Deidre, you know, she really put together just a really good, solid result where just, you know, all the way through, yeah, she had one penalty in the last stage. Um, but really again, very challenging conditions. It was not a, a no wind scenario. The range approach there is really challenging. Um, so it's, it's just not an, not an easy place to, uh, to hit targets and hitting 19 to 20 at the Olympic individual, when it's your first Olympic individual, your first Olympics, I mean, that's just a great result. And, um, yeah, that was definitely the, the highlight, um, going forward through, you know, through the rest of the games, and then, you know, there was that definitely some other uh, bright points. Again, Deidre had just a phenomenal, you know, showing enough so that she qualified for the mass start and uh, competed in, in the Olympic mass start race, which only 30 athletes in the world get to do. And so it was her, not only was it her first Olympic mass start, it was her first mass start ever. And so, um, you know, that was a good way to cap off the Olympics. Um, you know, you had Jake Brown, um, with a top 30 in the individual. Um, and we had, uh, Joanne Reed, another top 30 in the pursuit. So, uh, definitely some other athletes shining in different, at different points along the way. Um, so overall, I think everyone was, you know, you have athletes that, perform the way that they want to and meet their expectations. And as every Olympics is the case, you know, you have athletes that don't meet their expectations and we had some of that as well. But what I can say is 
everyone competed to the best that they could do each day and, and um, left it all out on the course. Lowell, as a high-performance director, I know that you're always looking forward. How are the next athletes doing? Who are the veterans who are going to be moving on? And you had a real blend on this team. You had veterans like Claire and Susan who are competing in their last Olympics, and you had a lot of newcomers too. As you look at that balance, what are some of your takeaways from Beijing as you now look forward four years to Milan Cortina? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're we're going to see some of our veterans retire, which is kind of typical of a of an Olympic year. And um, and you know, as we see athletes like Claire Egan, um, like Susan Dunkley, like Leif Nordgren um, retiring and stepping away, it, it's time for some of these younger athletes to step into that role. Of uh, by the time Cortina rolls around. Uh, some of what we consider the younger crowd is going to be considered veterans. Um, and so you can already see uh, sort of in Deidre's results, we're, we're seeing how some of the next generation of, of national team athletes can, can step in to fill that role. But yeah, I mean, I think when you look at Deidre's results, that's a really optimistic um, situation and uh you know bodes well for for the future you know joanne had some great ski times i think she definitely you know wanted to see some better results on the range but um you know very competitive ski times and if not for a few uh missed shots you know she would have been right there in in that you know top 15 territory and then on the men's side you know the three the three men that will go on um, Jake Brown, Paul Schomer, uh, Sean Doherty, all of them at various points along the way this season have shown the ability to compete with the world's best. And, uh, so I think, you know, th those are the bright spots looking at the future. And, um, and also I should say, and I think Tim will get into this a little bit more. Um, there's a, you know, some really talented juniors in the pipeline right now that are, um, doing some great things on the junior circuit. So I'm really excited to see, uh, see how that happens. Also on the young senior side, this is a, a category of athlete that, you know, with the way the IBU categories are, are laid out age-wise, um, a lot of times there's, there's a period of time where athletes are kind of bridging between the junior ranks and the senior ranks where, you know, they're kind of in the middle and racing on the IBU cup circuit. But we definitely have uh, some some really talented young seniors um, that that's a really exciting time in an athlete's career because that's where you oftentimes see big jumps in performance from year to year. So that's an exciting place to look as well. Kind of speaking of that, and we're going to go to Tim here in just a minute, but uh, as if the Olympics weren't enough, literally three days later, uh, the Youth and Junior World Championships opened up in Soldier Hollow. And Lowell, as High Performance Director, can you give us just a little intro to that? And then we're going to go to Tim and dissect the event a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, a, it's a great event. It's a huge event. As Tim will tell you, uh, they race pretty much every day for, you know, two weeks straight. And, you know, so that that's really... I, I don't know if it's a challenge. It's a challenge on the staff side. I think it's just, there's so many athletes racing. Um, and so it's, uh, it's a bustle of activity. It's a really fun festive event. 
and you really get to see kind of a preview of like, you know, the years to come, like who's going to be vying for, um, for top ranks on the senior world cup tour. Um, what we saw there, and again, I, I won't get too much into it, but really just, we saw some, some great, uh, results, um, from really, you know, all the athletes, but especially on the junior men's side, we have a really strong contingent of, uh, of junior men. And it's really exciting to see, you know, a lot of times we've had, you know, if you look back and you look at Sean Doherty's junior results, for example, he was winning junior worlds, um, at that time, but, you know, right now we've got, uh, you know, an entire team of junior men that are really every day going out there and skiing course times that are right there at the top of the of top of the world. And, you know, it's, it's the juniors. So everyone, the shooting's not as consistent as you see later in an athlete's career. Uh, so there's some volatility there, but uh, as Tim will tell you, you know, there's just some really solid results and really, if you talk about high performance and what's the future look like and those kind of things, really what we, we, you know, are excited about and look at is, you know, how fast are athletes skiing compared to the rest of the world? And, you know, the shooting is important at this stage, but it's also, it's something that that comes with time. And, you know, you might be a, a 70% average shooter at this point as a, as a 19 or 20 year old, like I said, and it's, it's an exciting point in a, in an athlete's career because you can see just really dramatic improvements year over year when you're at that, um, when you're at that age. And, uh, it's, it's not to say you don't see that later on in an athlete's career where you're, you know, maybe your late twenties, but you know, it's hard to go anywhere if you're already at 90%, uh, or 92%, uh, average shooting, you're looking at how can I get to 93%? You're not looking for a 5% jump in your season average shooting percentage. So that's the type of stuff you do see as with 19 year olds and 20 year olds, you see ski speed improvement of, you know, one or 2%. You see shooting average, uh, improvement of four or five, 6% year over year. Um, and that's, that's, uh, something that we're excited about. Um, especially with, uh, uh with some of these junior guys that are going to be graduating into the senior ranks here shortly. Well, it was an exciting event to watch. I was down there for a few days to Soldier Hollow. And Tim, uh, let's go to, go to you as the Director of Athlete Development. First of all, Tim, talk a little bit about the importance of this event. Coming back to the U.S., being at Soldier Hollow on the 2002 Olympic venue, uh, what's the importance of having this event at home for us? Yeah, this event is definitely very important for U.S. Bathlon for for a variety of reasons. First of all, it's it's our chance to sh- to show the world that we're capable of you know hosting a truly world class professionally run event, and that the U.S. is a viable place for the biathlon world to continue to come back to to have these types of events. And I'm really really happy to say that I think the the folks out at Soldier Hollow just did a great job running this event. Um, all of the Europeans I talked to, all of the other athletes and staff who were there competing really had a terrific time. And I also heard some really great reviews from the IBU people who were there to help run these races. They were happy with the organization. Things went very smoothly there from their side. 
And I think the folks there at Soldier Hollow just proved to everyone that this is a place that's worth coming back to. We can, we can host these events. We can host them in the U.S. We can run them as professionally as they're run in other, other areas that have these events more often. So, you know, with that, we certainly hope that Soldier Hollow and other venues in the U.S. will uh, have these opportunities to have events such as Junior World, such as World Cups, um, even IBU Cups. And this was certainly a great start. On the athletic side of things, uh, it's also really important for us because for our athletes, you know, they're only used to going to these events and competing in Europe. And we certainly looked at this as a big advantage for us to be able to have a, a home world championships where something like 70% of our athletes were able to drive to this event. That doesn't happen for us so often. So to have that, to be at home for a lot of us, uh, a lot of these athletes, you know, competing at altitude, a lot of our athletes live at altitude. So that's another really big advantage for them. We were also able to get on the venue early there and do a, a bit of a, a training camp before the competition started. You know, we weren't dealing with jet lag, all these things that we normally have to deal with. Uh, all of everyone else had to deal with that coming over here. So certainly wanted to capitalize on that and try and have some top performances, which I think we were able to accomplish. You did have, of course, still a COVID protocol in place for safety of athletes and, and officials, uh, certainly not as onerous as it was over in Beijing. Uh, did the international athletes who were here, were they able to kind of get out and about a little bit and maybe to experience America and experience Utah a little bit more than perhaps the athletes were in Beijing? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I was not in Beijing, but from talking to Lowell and, and hearing about things on the ground there, the, the protocols uh, for coming here to the U.S. and being part of the, the IBU bubble there in Soldier Hollow were quite a bit different and uh, way more relaxed. And that, that certainly allowed for athletes uh, to get out and experience some of what Utah and the U.S. has to offer. I can say that in the dining hall, by the end, I saw uh, quite a few different uh, cowboy hats coming in there on European athletes. So you could see that they were getting out and uh, experiencing some of that Utah flair. Uh, the organizers also did a good job of just organizing uh, different trips. You know, the, <laughs> I know the shopping outlets there were, uh, were a real hit with people uh, heading out and yeah, getting to experiencing kind of a, I think something different than they you would get, get in Europe for sure. So I know, you know, from speaking to the other athletes and coaches, pretty much everyone was, was getting out, getting up to Park City, uh, some even down to Salt Lake, and really getting to just to see more than just the biathlon venue, which I think has certainly played a big role in making this even more of a, a special event for everyone. Yeah, that bus trip to the outlet malls is always an important element at any event at Soldier Hollow with foreign athletes. I, I want to touch on one uh, uh, actually somewhat sad uh, uh, issue that you did deal with uh, during that time and with the Ukraine-Russian conflict taking place right at the same time as the Youth and Junior World Championships. Uh, your event was impacted by that. The Ukrainian team was uh, unable to uh, com compete. The Ukrainian flag did fly over the competition management building. Uh, was there any impact or, or, or thoughts from the athletes about that during the competition, knowing that this was happening and that it was impacting the world of sport as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's a, certainly a, a challenging, uh, time for everyone. And 
especially doing doing sport like that uh, the athletes you know are obviously very aware of what's going on in the world and we don't have you know as you mentioned the ukrainians obviously were not able to be there competing and as an athlete when you're in that situation it can it can feel a bit strange right because you have this this major world event going on yet we're there able to participate in sport and i think it really if anything makes makes the athletes really appreciate the the freedoms we have and how lucky we are to be to be there and to be doing something like sport that we choose to do um so it, it definitely definitely put a, a different feel on the on the championships for sure well let's get back to athletics uh you did have some good highlights uh for the u.s biathlon team why don't you run through some of the uh the high spots from those youth and junior world championships for the u.s yeah we definitely had some some high points there that uh we all left very proud of you know it, it feels strange for me to to call out individual performances because i i really i truly feel like every athlete there had had something they could go home and, and be proud of. But some of the ones that really stood out to me, uh, first would have, was Aurora Kramer's 11th place in the youth women's sprint race. Uh, really just a fantastic result. Um, it's a, an 11th place in a world championships is always a fantastic result. But then when you look a little bit into Aurora's background, you realize just how special that result is. Aurora is someone who's been doing biathlon for about two years, and she hasn't been ski racing for too much longer than that. So to have such limited experience in the sport and have an 11th place finish at a world championships is truly remarkable. And you know, I, I knew going into this that she had a chance to be up there from what I've seen from her the rest of the winter. But seeing that and seeing her be able to put it all together when it counts the most, uh, know that there is no limit for her going forward i am very very excited to see what the, the future brings for aurora i think she is truly a uh, a rising star here in this sport um other results there we had bjorn westervelt's pursuit race you know bjorn didn't have a fantastic sprint race um he finished you know further back than than we had expected however he rebounded and really came back with a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal pursuit race, shooting 17 for 20, which was which was very solid shooting for the day. Skiing the ninth fastest course time on that day, and overall he ended up with the eighth fastest time of the day if you look at the pursuit leg. So again, eighth fastest person in the world that day on the pursuit. That's a really, really fantastic result, and one that I know he left very, very motivated about. Other other uh, performances that stood out to me, we had Lexi Madigan shooting zero penalties in the junior women's individual race. That is just incredible shooting, especially for uh, these you know younger athletes that don't have the experience of the World Cup athletes. When you look at a World Cup individual race, you don't see so many clean shooting performances, and to have Lexi do that, you know, at the junior level, at World Championships where she's feeling the most pressure to compete well was uh, fantastic to see. And I, I could see that gave her a lot of confidence going forward. Uh, definitely some other, other great results out there. Uh, we had junior guys really in the mix every single day with uh, ski speed and Emma Sturtz shooting uh, just one penalty in the individual, which is also uh, truly you know fantastic shooting performance. 
And I would definitely call out Wes Campbell's ski speed as, as standing out and being something that, um, something of note there at those championships. Wes was skiing, Wes was skiing fast enough where, uh, I had other coaches coming up to me on the course saying, who, who is that kid? Where is he from? What's his story? He's, uh, you know, people recognize what a true talent he is on the ski course. So again, a lot of great things coming out of world juniors. I could, I could name uh, many more as well, but, uh, overall some solid results for the team. And most of all, and most importantly, I think everyone left there really, really motivated to, uh, to get back to work and to try and improve for, for next year's championships. Great. Thanks for that recap, Tim. And now let's take a look forward. You have the national championships coming up in Lake Placid in uh, just a short period of time at the end of March. Uh, the upgraded, uh, renewed Olympic venue at Mount Van Hovenberg uh, with the new biathlon range. Tell us about that and what uh, you expect to see uh, in, in that championship event coming up very soon. Yeah, we're very excited to get, uh, to get our nationals back here. In just a couple of weeks, Lake Placid has completely rebuilt their biathlon venue out at Mount Van Hovenberg. Uh, that construction's been going on for the past couple of years, and that project is now complete. And with that, they now have a truly world-class biathlon venue. It means so much to our program to have that here in Lake Placid. And we know that the, the folks here in Lake Placid at Orta are interested in hosting big events here in the future. Next winter in 2023, we have the World University Games. Uh, and from there, I know they, you know, they have ambitions of building up to hosting World Cups here as well. But in order to do that, we need to start somewhere. And our national championships is a great, great spot to do that. So this will be the, the biggest event held at this new venue to date. And it's uh, a great opportunity for the organizers here to to get to gain some experience hosting these bigger events the the tracks here are phenomenal it's a very challenging course they really have um, world-class snowmaking here as well we know on on the east coast here the the snow levels can go up and down super fast uh, but with the snowmaking system they have put in place there we feel pretty pretty safe having an event here even in, in late march which is a which is great for for all of us so we're excited to get our World Cup athletes home after Oslo, bring them here to Lake Placid, bring a lot of our junior national team members and our clubs from around the country here to all compete together for really the, the first time uh, and our only opportunity to do that during the winter. So I know everyone is, is looking forward to seeing each other and having some great races here coming up soon in Lake Placid. Tim, as development director, how important is it for you to have all of those clubs from around the country come together in one place to kind of evaluate talent and look forward to the future? Yeah, that's very important. And I think, you know, one thing that stands out for me is there's no better way to, to motivate our younger athletes than to have them competing alongside our best national athletes. And we really don't have that opportunity very often in the U.S., right? We're a, a huge country. We have Athletes competing from Alaska to Maine and getting them together in one spot is always a big challenge. This event, our national championships, is where that happens. And to bring together these clubs from all over the country, you know, competing alongside the, the Susan Dunkleys, the Claire Egan's, the, the Jake Browns is, is just a great opportunity. And I know those kids leave here super, super motivated. And that's 
very important for our whole program. Lowell, one final question for you before we wrap it up. Uh, the World Cup is just finishing up. We have the national championships coming up shortly in Lake Placid. As you look into the spring and into the summer, what's your planning process to kind of set forward the strategic direction for the organization and for the team going into next season? Yeah, I think that's a lot of the work that's uh, underway currently is, um, you know, it's a lot of people probably don't realize how much planning for next year happens during the current season. Um, but really it's a, I have to say it's, uh, it's a team effort. Um, I think we have a great staff and I rely on our expert coaches and, um, and our expert staff to really have a pretty robust discussion looking at, um, an analysis of what's, what's occurred this year, what the changes are going to be next, next year in terms of, um, roster changes of athletes, retiring new athletes coming up and, uh, and looking at what makes the, the most sense for putting together the best program that we can. Um, I'm really optimistic about the future of us biathlon and us biathletes competing internationally. Um, as Tim just recapped, uh, it was a really successful, uh, world juniors. And, you know, that is a really good kind of bellwether of, you know, things to come for us biathlon. I think, you know, some of the major sort of top line areas that we're thinking about going into this next quad, uh, and definitely near term this, this coming year, this coming training season is, uh, you know, continuing to, um, do the things that were successful for us, for our athletes. And those would be, um, centralized training camps, um, in places like Lake Placid in places like soldier hollow time and time again, those proved to be just so valuable for our athletes. Uh, and, and also, um, you know, part of our strategy going forward in the next quad is, um, really trying to broaden, some of the areas of the pipeline and the development pipeline that is um, in places like um, what we would refer to as talent transfer, which is bringing cross-country skiers that are already highly developed and at a high ski speed, um, bringing them across to the sport of biathlon, introducing them to shooting. And um, every country out there is, is trying to do this. And a lot of countries are doing it with a lot of success. Um, if you just look back one week at the podium, uh, you've got Denise Herman from German from Germany uh, winning a race in Finland, uh, who is you know not only an Olympic champion, World Cup champion in biathlon, but came from the sport of cross country skiing. Stina Nilsson from Sweden is another great example of that. A lot of countries are seeing that, seeing the success of uh, that talent transfer phenomenon. And that's something that we've also experienced. If you look at a lot of our current national team athletes, they are, you know, they came from a cross country background and then made the jump over to biathlon in a relatively short, short time. We're talking about athletes like Jake Brown. Um, a lot of people don't remember that Susan Dunkley, Claire Egan were also that, that type uh, or that class of athlete where they, they came from a cross country background and, and then made the jump over to, um, to biathlon and incorporated shooting 
later on. So uh, we've had a lot of success in the past and we really want to continue um, building that side of our program. We just talked about um, the bright points in our, in our junior program. Those juniors are going to, are going to be graduating into the senior ranks here. And so um, we want to make sure we're providing really good opportunities for all levels um, of U.S. biathlon and U.S. biathletes to overlap at training opportunities at training camps um, and also, you know, have that high level of training that allows us to go out there and compete with the world's best on the international stage. Lowell, at risk of this question taking us into yet almost another full podcast on talent transfer, uh, clearly U.S. biathlon, the sport, has has been burgeoning in the last few years in the U.S., but so has cross-country. Is there a bit of a symbiotic relationship there that these two are kind of rising in stature at the same time? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I have to say uh, it's just, I think, really inspiring to see uh, some of the results from Jesse Diggins, um, from Rosie Brennan, um, you know, there's just, they had a, a great Olympics and hats off to the, to the U S team for just some phenomenal results. And you've seen, you know, ever since Keegan and Jesse's gold medal in Pyeongchang, really, uh, you see the effect that that has on a sport like cross country skiing in America and the numbers in clubs, um, have been growing exponentially over the last four years. Um, and we've seen that also on the biathlon side of things as well. Um, in places like uh, Bozeman, Montana, for example, um, just like struggling to keep up with the growth of, uh, club, of club biathlon. And that's, that's really what it takes to build our sport and build the, the level of depth and consistency that you see from some of the bigger nations like Germany and Norway. Um, and so we've uh we've put a lot of effort into um building a strategy not only for 2026 but uh, you know into 2030 actually is where our strategic plan is focused on is is all the way through to 2030 uh so that's um you know i think to your point or to your question tom about um does it help to have cross country skiers in america you know having top results absolutely um we are Team USA at the end of the day. And um, I think what we want to see at US Biathlon, much like what um, what US Ski Team wants to see, is just more and more youth athletes getting outside, getting involved with Nordic sports. And really, I mean, that's at the end of the day, that's all of our goals is we want to get kids involved in our sports. And, um, you know, if we can do that, all of our sports are going to benefit from that whether it's cross country, whether it's Nordic combined, whether it's biathlon, um, the more athletes we get involved at a young age, the better. Uh, I know I've kept you guys for a while, but Tim, I just want to go to you for one final thought too. Uh, the clubs is where the rubber meets the road and that's where you do a lot of your work. Uh, are you seeing, uh, an increased interest in clubs around America now in biathlon? Yes. Clubs are, are definitely growing right now. Lowell gave a great example there of Bozeman, Montana, uh, with the new program out there, Crosscut Mountain Sports, that they're they're uh, growing at a pace that's hard to keep up with. Same thing we're seeing up in Anchorage. You know that club has really, really uh, the numbers there have have gone up like crazy here the past few years, and it's something we're seeing all over the country. When you give 
kids the opportunity to to try biathlon, they want to do it. There's there's something, uh, yeah. It's just as as Lowell and I both know from how we got started as as youngsters. When you get the chance to to ski around and shoot targets, it's it's tough to beat that. And the more opportunities that we give kids to give it a try, the more these clubs are just going to continue to grow. Well, Tim Burke, Laurel Bailey, thank you so much for joining us on Heartbeat. We appreciate your insights. And I know you still got a few weeks left in the season, so uh, go out in, uh, in high style and congratulations on your success this year. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Some great insights from Lowell Bailey and Tim Burke. They're part of a team that's really helping U.S. biathlon move up in stature. I was out at the Youth and Junior World Championships at Soldier Hollow. Wow, what a remarkable event organized by the Utah Olympic Legacy Foundation and the local organizing committee with live streaming and broadcast coverage around the world. Amazing event. We hope that you're enjoying Heartbeat as we tell the stories of America's biathletes. You can help us by sharing the link to your social media channel and telling your friends to listen. And remember to subscribe to Heartbeat to get every episode delivered directly to you. And please leave a review if you can. I'm your host, Tom Kelly. Thank you for listening to Heartbeat, the U.S. Biathlon Podcast. Podcast.